Solastalgia. My name is Sue Ann Harding. My name is Colin Shaw. And this podcast is a series of stories about accidental environmental activism in Northern Ireland. I first came across the word solastalgia when I was reading Robert McFarlane's book, Underland. And solastalgia is a word that was coined by an Australian professor, Glenn Olbrecht, in 2003. And he defines it as a form of psychic or existential distress caused by environmental change. It's really good to be back in the studio. We've had a little bit of a break over the summer and a few challenging things have happened. And today we have Louise Taylor. We've only really recently met through the public engagement around Loch Ness. Welcome, Lou. It's really nice to have you here. It's wonderful to be here. Thank you. So let's start with talking about place or places, because often in our stories, people begin from a place of attachment or love or respect for some local place. I was thinking about this, and I think for a lot of people in recent events, if they've become aware of what's happening and how we've been involved with Loch Ness and how I found it, love our Loch, they might think it's Loch Ness. But actually for me, it's the whole of the six counties. It's the whole of Northern Ireland that I feel a deep sense of connection, but also the solastalgia, you know, the word. I do feel this sense of what's going on, this kind of sadness. I'm in my 40s, I'm 45. I was born in Royal Victoria. Both my parents are from Belfast. And I grew up, though, in Tyrone and just outside of Cookstown. And I used to roam the fields and roam the land and just take off and sit by streams and do my own thing, gather frog spawn. In those days, you could. We had the troubles, but we had a lot more freedom as children. Mm-hmm. Rightly or wrongly, we could meander and wander. And I returned. Actually, I went and I studied and I returned nine years ago. And I brought my children back here. And I suppose... I became aware of the rapid industrialization. I became aware of how farming was so different. And I became aware that that the countryside and the fields and the land and the rivers weren't really safe spaces and weren't really spaces that my children could enjoy with the same freedom Mm -hmm. and carefreeness that I did as a child. And I suppose I do feel really strongly connected to the six counties, because as a child, I, we didn't holiday in the Republic. Mm-hmm. We went to maybe Spain or different places. So I don't feel that connection with the whole of the island. I would like to develop that more, but I feel it with the six counties. And I do feel this sense of loss. I do feel like we're not protecting it. And I do feel that it's in a very, very, very desperate state mm-hmm. environmentally. And Loch Ness has been highly symbolic of that crisis mm. over the last, well, over the last decades, particularly over the last few months. Lots of coverage. Mm-hmm. Why it's come to a head, do you think? Why, why did it get everybody's attention? There's several different reasons why. Okay, I think the fishermen in particular, if you look at the different groups who've been really, really pushing this and love our Loch, we organised the wake of Loch Ness, which got a lot of attention, but that was very much a collaborative and we work as a collective. So our emphasis is on cherishing, protecting and celebrating the beautiful Loch Ness. But 
fishermen have known about the crisis of Loch Ness and the locals have generally known. There's a lot of people have known that it's been polluted to a very dangerous extent. There was a spotlight program in 2003 that was exposing very high levels of pollution. And one of our Lover Lock members was involved in that, and that's Carol Lindsay. So there has been a lot of people knowing. It became highly alarming, I think, because of the numbers. One reason is because of the wild water swimming community is so huge. Mm-hmm. There have always been wild water swimmers, but it took off as a therapeutic nature connection, nature wellness mechanism to help people with their mental health and their physical health so that community is thousands around the lock now if you didn't have those wild water swimmers when the algae blooms started appearing and that became actually a threat to life Mm -hmm. now i'm not just talking human life i'm talking wildlife like dogs were dying after drinking the water Mm -hmm. and the wild water swimming community is children as well so i think the numbers of people connected to it and using it for recreational wellness um, purposes, such as fishermen and wild water swimmers, those numbers have increased. It is quite difficult to access mm. as a common. We noticed that, yeah. You know, yeah. it's huge. It's mm. larger than Malta. It's a difficult space to access. But because those communities have been so connected and using it for those purposes, when something like the algae blooms, which became a public health concern, mm. became very visible, then you had a lot more people aware of it and then it was being pushed the pressure was on the media to report but it's not new the mm-hmm. last few years there have been algae blooms it's been in a terrible state ecologically it's in it's been in dire straits for decades if you talk to conservationists they've been aware but it hasn't been really of that much public interest until larger yeah. people become directly impacted and they lose that health support yes. that wellness for some people they talk about green prescriptions mm-hmm. doctors say about using nature mm-hmm. as a support for mental health and that's what i do i'm ecotherapist i'm regularly telling people connect with the natural world it helps you stay well once that's removed because of an ecological crisis well then it becomes in the public interest and that's why it's taken off because mm-hmm. it's impacting a lot more people Do you have childhood memories of the lock? My dad was a fisherman. But again, as a child, I would have wandered around my area. And then if we were going anywhere, we're in Cookstown, we would have gone past the lock in different Mm. places. Mm. It's very segregated. There's very close-knit communities around the lock. So I can remember around home driving past it. I can remember talking about it in school and different things like that and projects. It's more now as an ecotherapist that mm. I would have used it for wild water swimming. I would have swam in it. I would have been training around Ballyronan because I was training for a 10K open water swim a few years ago to raise money for cancer research. It was in Lake Windermere. It got cancelled. It got cancelled because of weather. So I ended up <laughs> having to do 10K in Cookstown swimming pool. But I did all the training for that in Loch Ness and I really enjoyed it. But I was told then... I was told mm. then, a few years ago, when I was doing that, I think that was 2017, do not get into that lock. It's disgusting. Mm. Well, it's so polluted. People were saying, why would you get into Loch Ness? It's disgusting. Neither Sue Ann or I are from around here. And so we're sort of outsiders. I still obviously remember coming up. And one of the things that I was looking forward to was because if ever you see a, a map of Ireland, this you get this massive lock. If you ever draw Ireland, you have to put the lock in. You know. Yeah. And I remember thinking, right, that, that'll be an interesting resource we can go and visit. I remember trying to go out there one day and thinking, I don't know where to 
go? Mm-hmm. How do you visit Loch Ness? And just driving in around a little bit and... And then nobody ever talking about it very much. There was never any events held there. And mm-hmm. So you had this massive body of water. Mm-hmm. And yet there was very, very, I don't know, almost hidden. Mm-hmm. Hidden lock in a funny way, you know. Funny and that's way. so interesting. Mm-hmm. So we're outsiders. But what you're describing, people who live around it and swim in it and fish in it, they really know it. And that kind of local knowledge and that real attachment to a place that maybe is not so visible to the larger public eye. How do you create an environmental disaster over 20, 30, 40 years and four hectares blow up in anybody's face just one summer? Since everybody knew, everybody knew locally, people were telling each other, Mm -hmm. but when we're doing anything about it. Well, they couldn't. They didn't feel they could. And still, if you look at the amount of information going out, it feels very overwhelming to people because it's such a shit show Mm -hmm, (laughs) mm -hmm. of complete malfunction, dysfunction, political madness. You've got colonialisms in there, just for an extra added little bit of drama. Well, the Earl of Shaftesbury, God love him. He's not a scapegoat. We're not no, going to scapegoat no, the Earl of Shaftesbury. Of you, yeah, I think the Earl of Shaftesbury is quite an easy scapegoat, but let's not pretend mm. he... So the Earl of Shaftesbury owns the bottom of the lock. He owns the lock. And has floor. owned it since 1600, the 1600s. Yeah. And it's been in his family. Yeah. He was given it to by the king at the time. And it's remained in, in the yeah. family's possession ever since. Yeah. And he says there's not much he can do about anything, which I just find like, OK, and I'm going to be honest, I'm an intersectional eco-feminist. Mm-hmm. That's where I'm coming from. That's my research of a PhD. I critique power structures. I critique systems like patriarchy, capitalism, imperialism, colonialism, all the isms I am critiquing. But the Earl of Shaftesbury serves a very important purpose he's protected because he pays for management bodies there's management bodies there's government but in case the Earl of Shaftesbury hasn't heard we don't have a functioning one it's been going on for a very long time and often people would argue that's to the advantage of businesses particularly Mm -hmm. international vested interests or people who don't live locally and aren't impacted by the lack of regulations so the Earl of Shaftesbury has been heard to say, it's not me, it's them, which is classic Northern Ireland. We all are used to them blaming other people. But I have never heard the Earl of Shaftesbury express one bit of concern about the pollution Mm. of the largest freshwater lake in Ireland and the United Kingdom. And if I owned the lock floor, Mm -hmm. I would do a little bit of research. Mm -hmm. And if I knew that it was one of the most polluted bodies of water in the whole of Europe, I would be a little bit concerned, Mm -hmm. particularly about the wildlife as it's protected. It's supposed to be. But the thing is, the Earl of Shaftesbury, he's not wrong, but he needs to take a little bit of responsibility. And that's what I'd say to a lot of businessmen Mm -hmm. who are involved in extractivist industries like sand dredging. Mm -hmm. Sand dredging is not beneficial to the lock. (laughs) It's not beneficial to the wildlife. It's beneficial to his purse and a small select group of people who are profiting from it. Mm -hmm. But that's one factor. So that's an area of madness. Now, he's saying, I will sell it. It's a business. And I'm like, but there lies the problem, Mr. Early, Earl of Shaftesbury person. 
it's not a business no. to a lot of us. It's a living, breathing ecosystem that's on the verge of collapse because people like you have only used it as a business, but not just you, and he is right. People in Stormont, our politicians, our civil service. Yeah. Actually, going for growth 2013 strategy was nothing but a green light for farmers to do whatever the hell they wanted mm-hmm. in terms of slurry and in terms of pollution. Mm-hmm. And I've heard so many politicians and they just talk nonsense. I'm refusing at the minute to go on to BBC Northern Ireland until they get a level of education that means that we're not going to be greenwashed mm. and we're not going to be talked down to. I was on a panel where the politicians were considered to be experts. They're experts on dysfunctional governments. That's it. Mm -hmm. That's what our MLAs are experts in at the minute. They are not experts in the environment. Mm -hmm. So we have a civil service that has the Department of Agriculture, Environment and Rural Affairs, which clearly hasn't in any way wanted to protect the lock. It's protected big business and economic growth, which is not compatible with a thriving ecosystem. So that's DERA. We don't have an independent environmental agency. I'm a researcher. I recently requested freedom of information from DERA. They've refused to give me any information. I was asking to write documents, to write articles in journals. I wanted to write a balanced article. They refused to give me any information. What was the reason? They said it would cost them too much. Mm, And that's one of the cop-outs, isn't it, for freedom of information? I phoned their line and they actually told me to put in the freedom of information request like that. Now, if they wanted less, they could Mm. could still answer some of my questions. But they actually went to the press team. I said, well, I'm an academic. Then they told me what to do. And then a month later, they refused me that information. So if it looks Mm. corrupt and it feels corrupt, what do you think it might be? And Mm. I said at the action... The other Saturday, I do not consent to DERA. I do not Mm. want to pay for this level Mm. of systemic negligence and abuse. Mm. The disrespect and disdain Mm. that they treat me with as a rates payer, Mm -hmm. as a taxpayer, that's just disgraceful. If I was that bad at running my business, I wouldn't work. I wouldn't get paid. Mm -hmm. But yet I have to pay them while I know they're harmful to my air, to my water, to the land. I just think it's complete madness. Mm -hmm. That's the level. It's that dysfunction on all levels. How did you get involved in Love Our Lock? How did you go from just being a swimmer doing your 10Ks (laughs) up and down Cookstown (laughs) pool? (laughs) What happened to make you one of the faces of Love Our Lock? Well, I made it up. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I created it for a start so then they couldn't kick me out well they, they might mm-hmm. <laughs> it's a collective you just have to cherish celebrate and protect but basically I became a water protector a land protector as James Orr said when was this? when did they become really active? I accidentally became an activist about children's rights mm-hmm. and that was when my children were mistreated in a primary school and I stood up to that and I do think these are very similar struggles I think children are treated really quite badly in many of our schools and I don't think they're treated well but I also think that plays out in the way the environment's treated they're not considered their future like actually who's going to lose the most by the lock yeah it's the children the future generation so I became a mouthy mother (laughs) and uh, then I started to do a PhD because I wanted to learn more about nature experiences and the relationship between nature experiences, mental health. 
It was during that journey and being educated that I really stepped it up. Mm -hmm. And it really was because I thought, well, I'm a mother and I know this, I can't unknow Mm -hmm. with regards to the climate and ecological crisis and how environmental health is mental health or is not just mental health, but public health. I'm a mother. I need to do everything I can to make sure my children have the best chance and and other children. So it was during that I joined, actually. I first became connected with Extinction Rebellion Northern Ireland. They had a group, a working group, which was beautiful, had some of the most beautiful people, really amazing, really caring, loving women, their health and well-being working group. And then I became involved with the Spurns campaign. And then this year I stood as an independent in the local elections. Okay. My PhD is in politics and I'm an ethnographer. So I really love learning about systems. I'm that geeky. So I stood for election, but I didn't have any money, didn't have any party. Stood as an intersectional ecofeminist. I didn't water it down. I just said, I'm standing wow. as an intersectional ecofeminist. Most of the people were like, what what's that? that? Yeah, that? I was going to ask earlier and I didn't <laughs> I dare. I was like, oh, that? I'm not left, not right. I'm an intersectional ecofeminist. Mm-hmm. I think everything Everything's broken. We need mm-hmm. to start again. So I wasn't expecting to win, but I had a great time, right? Mm-hmm. And I learned so much. Mm-hmm. Now, what I wanted to show people during that campaign was you do not need to get voted in to make things happen. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So it was during that that I started a few initiatives. One of them was Love or Lock. From my research, love was the most powerful motivator for activism. It was the most powerful motivator and a catalyst for change. So I was like, right, what would happen if we were all to love these spaces? Not just care for them like Mm -hmm. custodians. What if we were really up it here and love Mm -hmm. it? And that's where I came up with that idea. And it was connected to the Rights of Nature campaign, which I'm also privileged to be connected with too. And that's when that all started, that activism. So this year it's really ramped up, which thankfully so many people have got on board with and they get it. Mm. And that's amazing. Mm. They get it. It makes sense to them. So the collective's growing, but that was this year. It it really came out of my research and understanding that love Mm. is what we need. Mm. That is really powerful. And that's the difference between you and the people who live around the lock and the Earl of Shaftesbury and the sand extractors because they don't love the lock. I'm sure you would challenge that. He'd say he absolutely adores the lock. He loves walking around. Well, does he love the lock as an ecosystem or does he love it as a business for him to earn, extract, extract? So that's where that ecological Mm. self and that, bigger consciousness Mm. and I understand why the Earl of Shaftesbury would want to make millions from the lock because he's got this huge house that he inherited he inherited that and he needs to keep up like cost of living crisis you know what I mean everything's Mm -hmm. more expensive but does he love the lock so when you love the lock what are you talking about what does it mean for you to say I love the lock well if you love a person or you love something, what do you want for it? And people don't understand love. I think it's been commodified. I think the idea, the concept of love is misappropriated and misused. And that's why the cherish, protect and celebrate. Yeah. If you really love somebody, you want the best for them. If you love something, you want the best for it. You want it 
to achieve and be everything it could be. To thrive. To thrive. Mm-hmm. So now you've got yourself in a dandy situation because you love something that is completely unprotected. So we're back to emotions. That's terrifying as it's slowly polluted. And you've diagnosed this level of dysfunction. But then how do you plot a way out of that? What do you do? Well, do you desert? Do you desert? Do you give up on things that you love? No, clearly you won't. But no, no. But if everything's wrong, if the civil servants, if the ministers, if the owner, at least of the bed, if all of these practices, this sort of constellation of actors, none of them who love the lock in the way you describe it, what do you do? You keep going and you keep showing that another way is possible. Like I'm sitting going, right, what if we were to do this? This is how you could make money out of it. You could make money. Well, if it was a tourist destination and all that there, they could make money and we could buy some of it. And if if Dara gave lots of the farmers around the lock lots of money, to, and they can, it's possible. Things can change. People always say, no, you can't do it. And they always resist that change. But actually, lots of things are possible. Like, That's one of the hardest things about living here. The environmental devastation and destruction is not the most tragic thing for me about living in Northern Ireland. It's dealing with the naysayers, Mm -hmm. the ones who are all like, no, it's too late. And that's why the week came about, actually. It was actually a man who said it was too far gone. And he didn't want to try and protect it. I see. That's, that's, that's why that idea oh, came so up. So the lock is too far gone and he, he doesn't... Said, oh. dead. He was like, it's dead. And that's what a lot of people right. around the lock... I think this summer a lot of people went, why are they kicking up a fuss now? Yeah. Why is it a big deal now? Because a lot of people would have been like, but it's been really bad mm-hmm. for a long time. I have a theory about why it captured people's imagination. Uh-huh. Because it looked like pollution. If you ask anybody to draw pollution, it's sludge. And the fact that it was this sort of green mass of disgusting stuff and it, blue and, blue and green so sort of weird yeah. thing. It just looked like pollution. But obviously the lake's still there, but it had been materially sort of altered in a way that so clearly been mocked yeah, about. Yeah, images of dead swans. It's a, yes, it's a kind swan. of an iconic thing mm-hmm. that this beast is not washed up in a fishing net or something like that it's on the lake dead but it was so alien almost Mm, like it looked really but we've made that that's that's Mm. like that is nature actually I would argue everything's nature because we all are nature Mm. so that level of pollution is nature because we've created it what is it telling us it's about balance and sustainability Mm. And that's what those algae blooms are showing us. We are completely off balance. This is not sustainable. This is not good for anybody. Now, but the thing is, you talk to different people. You talk to Loch Partnership. They're like, right, this is it. It's agriculture runoff. It's NI water and it's septic tanks and pollution, right? You talk to farmers. They're like, oh, we're getting all the blame. I'm like... We need to take responsibility here. Mm. People need to stop feeling like they're victims because if everybody's a victim, nobody's a victim. People need to take responsibility. The way we live is not balanced and not sustainable. And agriculture is one of our greatest industries. We've less than a 2 million population, but we feed 10 million people. A very protein-rich diet. Where's all that poo going? Where's all that slurry going? There's a crisis there. Okay, deal with it. Stop pretending you're victims. Stop telling me that you're so stressed. I've met with them 
and you give them any expert knowledge and they're like, but no. And they've got AFB giving them all the expert thing. I'm like, we need to just transition. That's very clear. We need to just transition. That just transition needs to protect farmers and they need to be encouraged to farm and thrive and earn yeah. in a sustainable manner. Yeah. Yeah. But if you talk to them about that, which I did, they look at you like you're nuts. Who's them though? The, the but Ulster uh, Farmers Union and different like people. Just... They're like, but you're a crazy woman environmentalist. I'm like, the science is clear. Yeah. We've our water for forty percent of the population. Yeah. The NI water are saying it might smell earthy and musty out of your tap. Or NI water it's not supposed to. <laughs> It's supposed to be odorless. This is dangerous. So stop making excuses and start planning for new ways of doing yeah. things that are sustainable. Yeah. Sure, milk's being produced below the cost of production. That's not sustainable. So farmers need to be encouraged and supported to just transition. But again, we're dealing with Dara. And yeah. Dara, who I, I've been very unapologetic about being very critical of, I don't want to pay for you. Mm. You're not fit for purpose and you're a danger to our environment and our health. You need to do better. You need to actually get some experts. I don't know who's advising them. Who the hell is advising Dara? Because they need sacked. It just makes no sense. Do they not go down to the lock and see what's happening? Are they just not affected by it or choose not to be affected by it? Is it a decompartmentalization thing? Desensitized? It's, it's always been this way. It's yeah. got nothing I've, I've to do with I've listened to them me. on the, yeah. If, if you listen to them on the interviews, basically what they do is they minimize it and then they will right. so analyze it. So they break it into constituent parts. So all of a sudden you, they decatastrophize a catastrophe. Okay, so it's okay that it just smells musty and, you exactly. know, it's, it's and okay. This is happening elsewhere in the world. You know, this is yeah. not to Loch Ness, oh, yeah. you know. Oh, they've got them word. in Lake Erie, right? There's mm-hmm. blue-green yeah. algae so it's, You're right. There. Actually, in Ulster Farmers Union, when I was talking, and she was a lovely woman, I'm going to say that, but she said, I was said about New Zealand and different initiatives. She went, but New Zealand's terrible. I'm like, can we stay mm-hmm. on point? Mm-hmm. Can yeah. we stay with Northern Ireland? I'm talking about different things they've tried, but you're like, no, they're worse. I'm like, no, we're terrible. There's mm-hmm. nothing to be proud of. And here. even if they're mm-hmm. worse, does that well, mean exactly. that's okay? Yes. Yeah. Uh, you know? Imagine oh, well, if it was a health worse, crisis. Yeah. So it's actually okay. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so we're all a little getting a little sociologically, which is fantastic. <laughs> oh, yeah. Because it has occurred to us talking to others is that there's something almost uniquely, perfectly terrible about Northern Ireland in the way it functions in the way the ministries are passed around and there has to be sort of proportionality between parties and stuff like that so basically it's a perfect place to bugger up the planet right but you you went for political office which is interesting so you obviously think that that was worth your time no I went in as a as a kind of I didn't print one flyer put up one poster (laughs) or knock on one door Mm -hmm. I was like, if you vote me and I'm going to disrupt. Okay. I was Did you going get any in. votes? I got 44 first preference votes. There you go. Okay. I call them the Cook's Time 44. I was <laughs> I was quite surprised. And I wasn't actually there for the count. Mm-hmm. But actually, as that went on, I became more and more aware of how corrupt that system. And that's not democratic. There was no support for me as a woman, as a single woman. Remember, people were getting attacked for canvassing yes. in certain areas. I live in a very segregated area, like a mere divergent, and I had no support from the council. Mm-hmm. The council didn't do anything to accommodate, and you were left to fend for yourself. So 
that was one of the best experiences in terms of a PhD in politics. Mm. That's my thing. Mm. So I'm like, democracy is a fallacy. It mm. doesn't even exist. You must have that party support. They don't even need to care. They don't even need to know anything about the issues. And they will move them around in seats. Mm. But what do they actually do? I was the only environmentalist standing in the whole of Mid-Ulster. There was no Green Party candidates. Mm. I got 44 votes. It was so low on the preference. I was just seen as a mad woman. One of the young people said to me, they're just going to think you're a witch here. Or no, they're, they're just going to think you're the devil. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, that is incredible. Feminists are the devil. But it brought so much to my attention. And the timing was incredible. If you look at those main parties, not one of them give a damn about Lochnay and their literature. Mm. Not one of them cared. They've all been complicit. They've all colluded in this. They've all known about it. But yet they pretend they care about the public health. I actually would ask people to think, what do they actually do? Because I think Northern Ireland is a great example of how Anarchism might not be that mad. Mm. We don't have a government. Yeah, that there is no government. And we pay a lot of money for yeah. them. So anarchism is a stateless society. I actually think we're showing that it might be a hell of a lot better than what we've got now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the alliances that are being made through Friends of the Earth and the different campaigns, like you said, you knew about the Sparrows. It's that organizing where you find out who else cares, mm. who else is furious and who else does love the lock in a way that these political parties and these people standing for election don't. I don't know. Do you feel optimistic? Is that the right yeah. word? You know, for kind oh, of... Yeah, I do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Fantastic. Tell us why. Cause oh, mm-hmm. see this word. So love our lock or love our sparrows mm-hmm. campaign. Amazing. That campaign and those people, what they've done and how they have organised and how they've worked together is just beautiful. They're not getting paid. Mm -hmm. That is nothing but love. It's very, very hard on what they've come up against and how they've been treated with disrespect and disdain, particularly by Sinn Féin. SDLP have been quite good at times and different people have been involved, but they haven't had Mm. that really strong support. But Sinn Féin threw them under the bus, like straight away. Because they have a sort of a vested interest or connections with them? You don't know, but nobody Mm -hmm. will tell you. But they won't say that. They might say the old councillor to an action. When you're asking people to really step up for the environment, it's mm. not Sinn Féin doing it. No. It's not a DUP, but DUP don't even pretend to no. care. No. At least they're more transparent. Yes. yes, yes, yes. You know what you're dealing with there? They don't care. Yeah, right? we're not playing. Mm-hmm. We're not playing. We don't care. Farmers do whatever you want, right? Mm-hmm. Mm. But Sinn Féin are a different machine. Mm. So Michelle was on a boat in the lock and no, we're going to do it and we need an executive up and running. But I would say... But you were up and running and you were still terrible. Mm. And Sinn Féin had dearer ministers and DUP had dearer ministers. Mm. My hope is with the activists. My hope is with the people of the Spurns. My hope is with how the law community are organising. And we're organising outside of those old green and orange. This issue transcends all other political issues. And yeah, I think it's, it's beautiful. The environmental movement... Oh, this could be this could be the change we've all been waiting for, because it's just like we've had enough. Like, how bad does this have to get before we all start going right? Okay, leave them to it. Let's us decide what we want, and then you put that pressure on, and then they pretend. Yeah, it was it their was their idea. idea. Mm-hmm. That's the way. 
they work. Mm -hmm, Yeah. mm -hmm. And going back to also what you were saying, even if we don't quite know what to do next, we know that we can't unknow it. We can't Mm -hmm. desert it. We can't look away now. Once you've seen it Mm -hmm. and realized it and been horrified by the extent of it, how do you not see that anymore? I think we can't. We can't. And I think if you're to be effective water protector, land protector, you have to be ready to be disliked Mm. and you have to be ready to be ridiculed and jeered and mocked. But they know not what they do. That's what I say, because some of us, it's been brought to our consciousness in a really traumatic way. It either comes to your back door, it either comes to your home and then you are forced to Mm. because you can't unknow, you can't unsee, Mm. you can't sleep at night. Mm. So activism is a way of taking your power back and activism or land protection and water protection is a way of you saying, well, at least I tried. But I would much rather be me. I would always rather be me doing something than the people who You've heard aren't. That before, haven't you, with um, yeah. Anne Harper? Anne Harper said, said that that she would not trade mm-hmm. places for a second no. with the civil servants who kind <gasps> of you know no. who oh, who no. are so disempowered or are so kind of numb and complicit. But they're so powerful mm-hmm. too. This is this weird thing it where they're weird. so powerful, they have such responsibilities, recognize. and yet they. they manifestly are failing. I actually would really like you to talk more about the civil servants because I think they're cut off from their heart and their soul. You have to compartmentalise. Uh, like mm-hmm. Oh, I do. I think you, to be a water protector, you have to be fully connected to your authentic self. I don't think any of them are connected to their... And if they are, their authentic self is very, very dis connected to the emotions and their humanity. Mm-hmm. You have to be disconnected from your humanity to a certain extent to sign off on policies when the science is clear, you've signed a climate act, and then they all say, well, it's not us, it's because there's a non-functioning government. But in your statutory requirements, you have powers, you have authority. I like earning money. I like to be financially independent. But how I earn money is very important to me where that comes from, what I'm putting out in the world, how I'm impacting. So I work as a neurodivergent therapist consultant. Mm -hmm. That's how I pay my bills. And my clients, none of them sign a contract. I say, this is what I do. If it's working for you, you pay me. If it's not, don't pay me. And then they're empowered and they're doing it. But I'm really good at what I do. (laughs) So they pay you. (laughs) So I get paid and I do all right, right? But you see civil servants, and I hear it, and I heard it, that action. I got into a bit of trouble for laying the boot into the civil service, but I'll do it again. I think you have to be conscious of where your salary is coming from mm-hmm. and how you feel about that. And it's no shock that there would be high levels of sickness and time off. There's a lot of administrative dysfunction. Mm. The civil service is a power structure and a service that fails civil servants. Mm. For you to get to the top of the civil service, you're going to be paid a hell of a lot more money to defend and protect that highly dysfunctional power structure. Anybody who works in the prosecution service will tell you 
it's a disaster. Anybody who's engaged with it, it's a disaster. The police will tell you their resources are down. Our health service is on our knees. DERA is an absolute mess. Mm -hmm. If you work in that, you're being paid to protect and defend the civil service, Mm -hmm. even if it's making you very, very ill. Mm -hmm. Those at the top are paid a hell of a lot more. And they change rules every so often. That's right. Yeah. So it's very, very difficult to get them. Mm-hmm. As somebody who's paying for them, mm. I do not consent for one, but they won't even give me the respect of giving me information that should be public information. Mm-hmm. They treat the public with disdain and disrespect and they think they're victims. And that's what these power structures do under capitalism. Mm-hmm. They divide people. Mm-hmm. They pay people off to defend these really inhumane, yeah. ecocidal systems. Mm-hmm. I'd like to think that there are civil servants in there trying to do the right thing. Maybe we need to invite well, a couple civil servants to come in and, well, and just a, tell yes, us. I, we've always thought that. We need to talk to the people yeah. we're talking about. Yeah. Even the people with the chainsaws. Because I think... Part of the challenge is that when we talk to each other, we're in agreement. And that's good because you can support each other. But then the people outside of the room are the problems. It's very easy to fixate on this other. People talk about the DFI, bloody DFI, bloody DIRA. That is almost a godlike status. It's a thing. It's like mammon or something like that. Like and a that's faceless thing. A faceless thing. It's a power. It's a it's DIRA. A, it's a DIRA. The because department. The yeah. department. But from their perspective, they're probably defending colleagues. From their perspective, the DFI, they see roads as a good thing because it's jobs, because it's mobility. Yeah. That's their focus. DIRA, they have happy farmers and happy, well, miserable pigs, miserable hens, but productive farms. They probably think they're not doing a terrible job. And this go for growth thing. 10 million mouths fed. That's all kind of great. And oh, damn it, you know, maybe we've overdone it. But they will never catastrophize. They'll never say, I'd imagine, we have to ask them, but they'll, they'll never take a holistic look because that would be too awful. The, the reality is too terrible for them to look. But they're brief. They can talk about their remits. Well, I think that you should definitely engage. These are not bad people. No. no. They're like decent people. But people have to stop personalizing power structures. Mm-hmm. Mm. I'm a civil servant, so therefore, if you attack the civil service and critique it, you're attacking me. I'm like, you need to sort that out. Yeah. That is yeah. not true. And you need to really understand the climate crisis. Mm-hmm. I think it's really important that people have conversations and they do what they do and they do what feels right in terms of environmental. But I will say that environmentalists are very respectful generally. I think that they're really kind people in society. And they can spend a lot of time talking to people who treat them with nothing but disrespect and disdain mm. and greenwash. Mm. So I'm very selective of who I spend my time with, hence mm. why I'd be very reluctant at times to engage with BBC and I. Mm. Because this is oppressive. I have expert knowledge here. I have a voice. And if you're going to twist it and turn it for your agenda, I'm not going to share it with you. Mm -hmm. So there will be people that I am maybe not going to be that interested in spending a lot of my time and energy with you Mm -hmm. until you show me that Mm -hmm. you're going to be respectful and you're going to meet me because I'm actually tired of meeting them. There are a lot of people who are willing to meet us. And I would say I spend a lot more time encouraging those closer than trying to get the real radicals who are very, very far from my stance. If they 
think I'm crazy and stupid, I'm like, you stay in your lane then, dude, because yeah. I'm not convincing you otherwise. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because I actually think you just need to look at the state of the countryside. You need to look at the state of the lock. You need to look at the state of the planet to think, maybe we could do things a lot better than this. Mm-hmm. Do you reckon? Yeah. To the I profit don't of everybody. That's exactly. the weird thing. Exactly. Yeah. Everybody wins mm, if everybody the planet wins. is mm. balanced and sustainable. Yeah. Yeah. Like, what's your problem with mm. a balanced and sustainable planet? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? Yeah, what's your problem with a clean lock? Clean air. Uh, yeah. Hate it. No. Yeah. <laughs> Let us slurry. Like in Poland, it's illegal to spread slurry. Mm-hmm. Like I'm driving th- around the roads. It stinks, stinks in my house yeah. all the time. I live. Mm-hmm. It absolutely reeks all mm-hmm. the time. And we've just got used to it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. In other countries, that's not acceptable. Mm-hmm. And I actually have to say, a farmer cut down my tree. This is my neighbor. And if you're listening, hello, I haven't got away. <laughs> Because he's not. But he cut down my tree. And then I went to talk to him about it and he told me never to come back and shook his fist at me. And so, that was because I, I was a crazy environmentalist. I went to a solicitor. Solicitor said to me, judge is never going to care about a tree. And it was a 60-year-old Hawthorne. And uh, just like that. And that's where I said, this is exactly the problem. The whole system. Things are worth more dead than alive. Yeah. That tree was worth more dead than alive. And even a judge mm-hmm. wasn't going to care about your yeah. tree. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Violence is also a part of it. I think about that a lot in that the violence of chopping down that tree mm-hmm. is done then. There is a real imposition of what he wanted. Yeah. And what he was able to do, impunity, following violence, mm-hmm. that level of I'm going to do this and I don't care. I, I, yeah, I was and then outrage when people dare was, to object. Oh, he was disgusted with the entitlement. He was like, I've paid for these people for 40 pounds an hour. I was like, that tree is in my garden and you've just cut it down. You haven't even spoken to me. And he said, oh, right. Oops, and then he said, the no. And then he just, and then he went and actually I said, right, this tree, it's really upset because the mm. birds, like this is, Yeah. The birds had all lost their habitat. Everybody lost. It was in my garden. He's got acres and acres. I have a small space. And he shook his fist and said, don't you ever come back. And that's my neighbor. Mm. He knows my mother. His mother knows my mother. He used to play hockey. I see him all the time. Give him a wave the other day. Mm. And he shook his fist. At one point, I, he said, I said, look, I'm an environmentalist. He said, so am I. Oh. Went, well, you just cut down. Like, literally... I don't know, branches were in the way or something that oh, annoyed yeah, him. And he's a thug. Mm-hmm. And then farmers say they're victims. I tried to reason. Yeah. I'm a very small piece of land that I pay a lot of money for. Mm-hmm. He's got acres and acres and acres. And just like that, he thinks he's God. Mm-hmm. And we wonder why our countryside is a mess. Mm-hmm. And I work with other farmers and I spoke to a lot of other farmers after he was so violent. And all of the farmers I spoke to in the area, they said that his behavior was completely disgraceful and that they always talk to people and they need to talk to people before they touch anything mm-hmm. on border. Mm-hmm. That's mm-hmm. just good farming etiquette, but he's not a good yeah. farmer. Mm-hmm. But he owns a massive amount of land and he's out, and the other night he was out at two in the morning spraying in the fields. Mm-hmm. A few weeks ago. And I can't do anything about it. And it stinks. And that's Northern Ireland. It stinks because of... Because of spoiled men. (laughs) You mentioned mentioned gender. Is that something that you've thought much about? Gender? Yeah, Yeah. definitely. 
I don't think you qualify as an accidental activist, to be perfectly honest. But you don't? well, we think you're on and very accidental because <laughs> for today. But but so we are definitely accidental. St- yeah, well, I think we can still get back to that accidental. You know, what yeah. was the thing that tipped you? If someone had done that to my Hawthorne tree, I would totally be an activist then if I wasn't before. But you already were before. I phoned the police too and the Mm -hmm. police came into my house, investigated and they nearly got done for common assault but because there was a car door uh, involved and there was a dog, the police came round and looked and they told me I had to go to solicitors and all. So, I I mean, nobody so violating. I mean, the fact that so violating. You'd like to think that within your border yeah. of your home yeah. you are protecting it that someone can violate property and... rights you could argue no I, I swear the, yeah. it was the, the fence was there and he yeah. said no that's my land and then I had to get the deeds and then it's not clear and then because he's owned such a large mm-hmm. amount of land the system is set up mm. to protect farmers and big business mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and that's mm-hmm. a microcosm moment where your Hawthorne tree yeah the tree that you were protecting and letting the birds it's live and everything. Yeah, it was a fairy tree. Of course, was it? But he said it was his tree. He said it was his tree. So, so if it is your tree, why are you cutting them all down? And none of the other neighbours or anybody complained. And the whole hedge. And then you've got the witch. They must just think I'm the witch at the top of the hill. And I'm losing it going, what have you done? Leave it. Why didn't you talk to me? We could have just cut a branch. You mm-hmm. know, I was trying to be as reasonable. But he just... And mm. what I did, I think was I embarrassed him. Mm-hmm. And if men, not men who are used to thinking and using intellect to discuss issues, when they get embarrassed, they get violent and aggressive. Mm. If you wound their ego, if you wound their pride, men often, particularly the alpha male types, they can get very yeah. So let's explore this because when you are an environmentalist, even at our level, and you do encounter some sort of environmental destruction, very often it takes the form of a man with a chainsaw. And in our case, when this was all happening, what struck me was that they were having a lovely time. They were really enjoying it. Cutting down a tree, that's a, that's a man's work. That's a job of work. That you do it, you cut it up. There used to be something there, now it's a pile of logs. Mm-hmm. Move on. And that was devastating. There wasn't a hint of shame or care or anything like that. So we've identified a new kind of terrifying obstacle to environmentalism. But is it that male psyche of control and maybe a taste for destruction, a difficulty of expressing care, a disregard for people who do care? All of those... Well, it's an imbalance again of the masculine and the feminine, isn't Mm -hmm, it? mm -hmm. Like toxic masculinity, for instance. And then there's deep masculine, which is a really beautiful, it's a really beautiful way of expressing being masculine. It's very protective, actually. It's very caring, which has often been discounted because if you look at it, it goes back to business, Mm -hmm. I think. Business making money, providing. Mm-hmm. So that's where I think the masculine and men have often been failed because they have that pressure to provide. But then you have movements like the feminist movement, mm-hmm. which is a challenge to masculinity and it's a challenge to men. So they don't often know what to do or what to be at. And patriarchy plays out in farming mm-hmm. really strongly. The land goes to the sun mm-hmm. and it's still very much in Cookstown. The patriarchy is alive and well mm-hmm. and it's very very, very open mm. there it does it goes to the sun now there are more women involved but still not the same 
degree and also a lot of the time the women the farmer's wife that's on scene work that's invisible mm. work that mm. the women do mm-hmm. it's not rewarded at the same level as that really intense farming mm-hmm. but farming's very dangerous too it's very stressful actually rural support and i were very kind and have given me lots of information on stress and the impact of farming on farmers. So I do think gender plays a massive role here, but it started centuries ago and it's still playing out, but it's another power structure that people have bought into. And patriarchy, have you ever heard Bell Hooks say patriarchy has no gender Could and that explain? women can be patriarchal agents mm. and women can okay. be incredibly misogynistic. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So patriarchy is a power structure and marriage and the land ownership and all of those are still very much in the culture. Mm-hmm. But they're normalised and we're conditioned into them. But still women are disadvantaged within these. So in farming, the land goes from father to son, whereas we know land is one of the biggest signs of wealth here. Mm. You know, this mm. whole island is obsessed with land and ownership, the six counties, this, mm. that sure, and the other. Sure, sure, yeah. And colonialism is all about it. So farming, I think, at this point in time, represents a very, very powerful patriarchal structure that is detrimental to all. Patriarchy has no gender. It's harmful to men yeah. as yes, well. So. Yeah. It's harmful to everybody. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I wouldn't be the most popular person in my well, my cul-de-sac at time, but they're very respectful and they mm-hmm. leave me be. But they will be a little bit wary of you when you're challenging the status quo. And hey, that's what we're doing. So part of the reason I always think, obviously naively, that there is hope is that the status quo is changing. At least the messaging around where this planet is going is so stark, it's so clear that even the, the farmer in Tyrone, whose uh, the practices are embedded for generations, will have to start to acknowledge that those practices will need to change because it, the system isn't working. Like Lochnay is an example of that. So the groundswell of opinion, the salience of environmental issues, even though you got 44 votes and the only environmental <laughs> candidate that the to, and the Green Party struggles. But nevertheless, even the DUP are like got to acknowledge at some level that the climate is changing and something has to be done. Do you see that on the ground? Do you see that in no. cul-de-sac? Okay, gosh. There's crisis fatigue. There's compassion fatigue. People are just trying to survive. Climate delay is a new climate denial. I actually think most people are in climate denial to varying degrees. But I don't think most people are interested. I think they just see... Often people don't really get engaged until they're really uncomfortable and they're too comfortable. Mm -hmm. And they don't want to know. And again... That's why I'm reluctant to go on BBC NI. It's too easy to just say something and sound credible. Mm. It's too easy to counteract these arguments. There takes a level of sophistication, knowledge and consciousness. It takes some effort to become this educated. Mm. People don't want to know. That's what you're up against. Mm. We've all had that moment where we go, this is really happening. We have to take this seriously. And unless you come to that or it comes to you or it's in your backyard we see that it's happening perhaps with the people around the lock because they're like I can't swim here and before I could because once you reckon with it you can't unsee it so that's a big step to take and once you reckon with the idea that the government are not out to care for us or the environment that's a massive paradigm shift what do I do then next it's really a big deal 
Yeah, I think it's a lot. You know, it takes a lot to stick your neck out, and it doesn't always go in your direction. And you and you're working for free. Mm. Uh, it's a lot of energy. Open water swimmers have got back in the water recently. They're back in the lock, but that doesn't mean the pollution's it's been stopped away. at all. Yeah. But that's going to impact the campaign. Mm-hmm. And that's going to work in Deira's favour. Because they're it's back in the okay. water. Because Deira actually they said that. Yeah. They said they'll be back in the water. And for the average person, that must mean it's safe. Yeah. It doesn't. Mm. It doesn't at all. And the algae blooms, it was just a summer thing. Right, and yes. it happens all the time. And now it's okay. Circumstances run off, heavy rainfall. All that so a little bit of a flare-up, mm-hmm. a little bit of a witchy annoyance from mm-hmm. the environmentalists. But we'll just wait till it drops down again. And then and the wild water usual. Yeah. yeah, are back in the water. Mm-hmm. But that's greenwashing. Just because people are swimming in the water doesn't mean the water quality is good, doesn't mean it's not heavily polluted. Okay, there might not be those algae blooms. It just means it's changed, it's different. It doesn't mean that the lock is fine. Do you think you've had an impact? What is the plan of action to save Loch Ness? Is there one? There's going to be pressure coming from legal teams, which I have to say I'm really impressed by the way, like this is what I love. People are stepping up with their expert knowledge. There's legal. So Phoenix Law and PA Duffy's been very involved from the start. I've really enjoyed working with them and learning more and more about it. That pressure is important. We're also planning to do more walks. But next year, what we're hoping to do and really want to do is get more children involved, Mm -hmm. children, families. So it's walks for water. Mm -hmm. So one in Belfast, one in Derry. So planning Belfast one for April, Derry one for May, and then a Dublin one because the rivers don't know no border. The rivers, the water doesn't care. Mm -hmm. So we're doing a Dublin one in July, which Mm -hmm. we predict is going to be algae bloom right back in it. So it's keeping that color. It's keeping that joy. It's keeping Mm -hmm. that love and that activism so you're almost giving us a little toolkit here for being a, a real environmental activist <laughs> so because that's important water protector water protector yes yeah so you're stronger than you think you can have an impact in a way that you don't understand you're more powerful than you think yeah. now, it never feels that way mm-hmm. it never feels that way to me anyway but you're saying that by networking by being really strategic, by using every tool possible. Mm-hmm. Consciousness. It's a consciousness shift. Right. Mm. And then more and more people come. It becomes a norm. It becomes mm. unacceptable. It's mm. like lots of things have historically been accepted and then they become unacceptable mm-hmm. because of movements and consciousness raising. And see your conversation. You've got to have those conversations. You've got to sit with people and have, but not everybody wants to or has the time or energy mm. or is going to get on. And mm. that's okay. But the other things, like the petition, for instance, I think that's got over 23,000 signatures. Wow, that's now, that's a quite a radical stance, mm-hmm. too, because that's like in a community ownership. Mm-hmm. But community ownership and those conversations, people are starting to think. So, yeah, just do what you can from mm-hmm. where you're at. But I also think we've got to have fun. Mm-hmm. We've got to have fun laying mm-hmm. the bit into mm-hmm. the system. <laughs> and we've got to have fun trying to protect the planet because... What other reason? Why are we fighting for life? Why are we fighting for a a sustainable future? Why are we fighting for a thriving planet if it's not to be enjoyed and to love life?
ない。